Section 30 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 30. I had always, within reach, a plan of Paris, which, because I could see drawn on it the street in which Monsieur and Madame Swann lived, seemed to me to contain a secret treasure. And to please myself, as well as by a sort of chivalrous loyalty, in any connection, or with no relevance at all, I would repeat the name of that street, until my father, not being, like my mother and grandmother, in the secret of my love, would ask, But why are you always talking about that street? There's nothing wonderful about it. It is an admirable street to live in, because it's only a few minutes' walk from the Bois. But there are a dozen other streets just the same. I made every effort to introduce the name of Swan into my conversation with my parents. In my own mind, of course, I never ceased to murmur it but I needed also to hear its exquisite sound, and to make myself play that chord, the voiceless rendering of which did not suffice me. Moreover, that name of Swan, with which I had for so long been familiar, was to me now, as happens at times to people suffering from aphasia in the case of the most ordinary words, the name of something new. It was forever present in my mind, which could not, however, grow accustomed to it. I analysed it. I spelt it. Its orthography came to me as a surprise. And with its familiarity, it had simultaneously lost its innocence. The pleasure that I derived from the sound of it, I felt to be so guilty, that it seemed to me as though the others must read my thoughts and would change the conversation if I endeavoured to guide it in that direction. I fell back upon subjects which still brought me into touch with Gilbert. I eternally repeated the same words, and it was no use my knowing that they were but words, words uttered in her absence which she could not hear, words without virtue in themselves, repeating what were indeed facts, but powerless to modify them. For still it seemed to me that by dint of handling, of stirring in this way everything that had reference to Gilbert, I might perhaps make emerge from it something that would bring me happiness. I told my parents again that Gilbert was very fond of her governess, as if the statement, when repeated for the hundredth time, would at last have the effect of making Gilbert suddenly burst into the room, come to live with us for ever. I had already sung the praises of the old lady who read the Debaz. I had hinted to my parents that she must at least be an ambassador's widow, if not actually a highness, and I continued to descant on her beauty, her splendour, her nobility, until the day on which I mentioned that, by what I had heard Gilbert call her, she appeared to be a Madame Blatin. Oh, now I know whom you mean, 
cried my mother, while I felt myself grow red all over with shame. On guard, on guard, as your grandfather says. And so it's she that you think so wonderful. Why, she's perfectly horrible, and always has been. She's the widow of a bailiff. You can't remember, when you were little, all the trouble I used to have to avoid her at your gymnastic lessons, where she was always trying to get hold of me. I didn't know the woman, of course, to tell me that you were much too nice-looking for a boy. She has always had an insane desire to get to know people, and she must be quite insane, as I have always thought, if she really does know Madame Swan. For even if she does come of very common people, I have never heard anything said against her character, but she must always be forcing herself upon strangers. She is really a horrible woman, frightfully vulgar, and besides, she is always creating awkward situations. As for Swan, in my attempts to resemble him, I spent the whole time, when I was at table, in drawing my finger along my nose, and in rubbing my eyes. My father would exclaim, The child's a perfect idiot. He's becoming quite impossible. More than all else, I should have liked to be as bald as Swan. He appeared to me to be a creature so extraordinary that I found it impossible to believe that people whom I knew, and often saw, knew him also, and that in the course of the day any one might run against him. And once, my mother, while she was telling us, as she did every evening at dinner, where she had been, and what she had done that afternoon, merely by the words, By the way, guess whom I saw at the Trois-Cartier, at the umbrella counter, Swan, caused to burst open in the midst of her narrative, an arid desert to me, a mystic blossom. What a melancholy satisfaction to learn that, that very afternoon, threading through the crowd his supernatural form, Swan had gone to buy an umbrella. Among the events of the day, great and small, but all equally unimportant, that one alone aroused in me those peculiar vibrations by which my love for Gilberte was invariably stirred. My father complained that I took no interest in anything, because I did not listen while he was speaking of the political developments that might follow the visit of King Theodosius, at that moment in France as the nation's guest, and, it was hinted, ally. And yet, how intensely interested I was to know whether Swan had been wearing his hooded cape. Did you speak to him? I asked. Why, of course I did, answered my mother, who always seemed afraid lest, were she to admit that we were not on the warmest of terms with Swan, people would seek to reconcile us more than she cared for, in view of the existence of Madame Swan, whom she did not wish to know. It was he who came up and spoke to me. I hadn't seen him. Then you haven't quarrelled. Quarrelled? What on earth made you think that we had quarrelled? She briskly parried, as though I had cast doubt on the fiction of her friendly relations with Swan, and was planning an attempt to bring them together. He might be cross with you for never asking him here. One isn't obliged to ask everyone to one's house, you know. Has he ever asked me to his? I don't know his wife. But he used often to come, at Combray. I should think he did. He used to come at Combray, 
and now, in Paris, he has something better to do, and so have I. But I can promise you we didn't look in the least like people who had quarrelled. We were kept waiting there for some time while they brought him his parcel. He asked after you. He told me you had been playing with his daughter. My mother went on, amazing me with the portentous revelation of my own existence in Swan's mind. Far more than that, of my existence in so complete, so material a form, that when I stood before him, trembling with love, in the Champs-Élysées, he had known my name, and who my mother was, and had been able to blend with my quality as his daughter's playmate, certain facts with regard to my grandparents and their connections, the place in which we lived, certain details of our past life, all of which I myself perhaps did not know. But my mother did not seem to have noticed anything particularly attractive in that counter at the Trois-Cartiers, where she had represented to Swann, at the moment in which he caught sight of her, a definite person, with whom he had sufficient memories in common to impel him to come up to her and to speak. Nor did either she or my father seem to find any occasion now to mention Swann's family, the grandparents of Gilbert, nor to use the title of stockbroker, topics than which nothing else gave me so keen a pleasure. My imagination had isolated and consecrated in the social Paris a certain family just as it had set apart in the structural Paris a certain house on whose porch it had fashioned sculptures and made its windows precious. But these ornaments I alone had eyes to see, just as my father and mother looked upon the house in which Swan lived, as one that closely resembled the other houses built at the same period in the neighbourhood of the Bois, so Swan's family seemed to them to be in the same category as many other families of stockbrokers. Their judgment was more or less favourable, according to the extent to which the family in question shared in merits that were common to the rest of the universe, and there was about it nothing that they could call unique. What, on the other hand, they did appreciate in the swans, they found in equal, if not in greater measure, elsewhere. And so, after admitting that the house was in a good position, they would go on to speak of some other house that was in a better, but had nothing to do with Gilbert, or of financiers on a larger scale than her grandfather had been and if they had appeared for a moment to be of my opinion, that was a mistake which was very soon corrected. For in order to distinguish in all Gilbert's surroundings an indefinable quality analogous in the scale of emotions to what in the scale of colours is called infrared, a supplementary sense of perception was required, with which love, for the time being, had endowed me. And this my parents lacked. On the days when Gilbert had warned me that she would not be coming to the Champs-Élysées, I would try to arrange my walks so that I should be brought into some kind of contact with her. Sometimes I would lead Françoise on a pilgrimage to the house in which the Swans lived, making her repeat to me unendingly all that she had learned from the governess with regard to Madame Swann. It seems she puts great faith in medals. She would never think of starting on a journey if she had heard an owl hoot, or the death watch in the wall, 
or if she had seen a cat at midnight, or if the furniture had creaked. Oh, yes, she's a most religious lady, she is. I was so madly in love with Gilbert that if, on our way, I caught sight of their old butler taking the dog out, my emotion would bring me to a standstill. I would fasten on his white whiskers eyes that melted with passion, and Françoise would rouse me with, "'What's wrong with you now, child?' And we would continue on our way until we reached their gate, where a porter, different from every other porter in the world, and saturated even to the braid on his livery, with the same melancholy charm that I had felt to be latent in the name of Gilbert, looked at me as though he knew that I was one of those whose natural unworthiness would forever prevent them from penetrating into the mysteries of the life inside, which it was his duty to guard, and over which the ground-floor windows appeared conscious of being protectingly closed, with far less resemblance between the nobly sweeping arches of their muslin curtains to any other windows in the world than to Gilbert's glancing eyes. On other days we would go along the boulevards, and I would post myself at the corner of the Rue Dufault. I had heard that Swann was often to be seen passing there, on his way to the dentist's, and my imagination so far differentiated Gilbert's father from the rest of humanity. His presence in the midst of a crowd of real people introduced among them so miraculous an element, that even before we reached the Madeleine, I would be trembling with emotion at the thought that I was approaching a street from which that supernatural apparition might at any moment burst upon me unawares. But most often of all, on days when I was not to see Gilbert, as I had heard that Madame Swann walked almost every day along the Allée des Acacias, round the big lake, and in the Allée de la Reine Marguerite, I would guide Françoise in the direction of the Bois de Boulogne. It was to me like one of those zoological gardens, in which one sees assembled together a variety of flora, and contrasted effects in landscape, where from a hill one passes to a grotto, a meadow, rocks, a stream, a trench, another hill, a marsh, but knows that they are there only to enable the hippopotamus, zebra, crocodile, rabbit, bear and heron to disport themselves in a natural or a picturesque setting. This, the bois, equally complex, uniting a multitude of little worlds, distinct and separate, placing a stage set with red trees, American oaks, like an experimental forest in Virginia, next to a fir wood by the edge of the lake, or to a forest grove, from which would suddenly emerge in her lissom covering of firs, with the large appealing eyes of a dumb animal, a hastening walker, was the garden of woman and like the myrtle alley in the Aeneid, planted for their delight with trees of one kind only, the Allée des Acacias was thronged by the famous beauties of the day. As, from a long way off, the sight of the jutting crag from which it dives into the pool thrills with joy the children who know that they are going to behold the seal, long before I reached the Acacia Alley, 
their fragrance, scattered abroad, would make me feel that I was approaching the incomparable presence of a vegetable personality, strong and tender. Then, as I drew near, the sight of their topmost branches, their lightly tossing foliage, in its easy grace, its coquettish outline, its delicate fabric, over which hundreds of flowers were laid, like winged and throbbing colonies of precious insects. And finally, their name itself, feminine, indolent, and seductive, made my heart beat, but with a social longing, like those waltzes which remind us only of the names of the fair dancers, called aloud as they entered the ballroom. I had been told that I should see in the alley certain women of fashion, who, in spite of their not all having husbands, were constantly mentioned in conjunction with Madame Swann, but most often by their professional names. Their new names, when they had any, being but a sort of incognito, a veil which those who would speak of them were careful to draw aside, so as to make themselves understood. Thinking that beauty, in the order of feminine elegance, was governed by occult laws into the knowledge of which they had been initiated, and that they had the power to realise it, I accepted before seeing them, like the truth of a coming revelation, the appearance of their clothes, of their carriages and horses, of a thousand details, among which I placed my faith as in an inner soul which gave the cohesion of a work of art to that ephemeral and changing pageant. But it was Madame Swann whom I wished to see, and I waited for her to go past, as deeply moved as though she were Gilberte, whose parents, saturated, like everything in her environment, with her own special charm, excited in me as keen a passion as she did herself, indeed a still more painful disturbance, since their point of contact with her was that intimate, that internal part of her life which was hidden from me. And furthermore, for I very soon learned, as we shall see in due course, that they did not like my playing with her, that feeling of veneration which we always have for those who hold, and exercise without restraint, the power to do us an injury. I assigned the first place, in the order of aesthetic merit and of social grandeur, to simplicity, when I saw Madame Swann on foot, in a polonaise of plain cloth, a little toque on her head, trimmed with a pheasant's wing, a bunch of violets in her bosom, hastening along the Allée des Acacias, as if it had been merely the shortest way back to her own house, and acknowledging with a rapid glance the courtesy of the gentlemen in carriages, who, recognising her figure at a distance, were raising their hats to her, and saying to one another, that there was never any one so well turned out as she. But instead of simplicity, it was to ostentation that I must assign the first place, if, after I had compelled Françoise, who could hold out no longer, and complained that her legs were giving beneath her, to stroll up and down with me for another hour, I saw at length, emerging from the Porte Dauphin, figuring for me a royal dignity, the passage of a sovereign, 
an impression such as no real queen has ever since been able to give me, because my notion of their power has been less vague and more founded upon experience. Borne along by the flight of a pair of fiery horses, slender and shapely as one sees them in the drawings of Constantine Guise, carrying on its box an enormous coachman, furred like a Cossack, and by his side a diminutive groom, like Toby, the late Boldenord's tiger. I saw, or rather I felt, its outlines engraved upon my heart by a clean and killing stab, a matchless Victoria, built rather high, and hinting through the extreme modernity of its appointments, at the forms of an earlier day, deep down in which lay negligently back Madame Swann, her hair now quite pale with one grey lock, girt with a narrow band of flowers, usually violets, from which floated down long veils, a lilac parasol in her hand, on her lips an ambiguous smile, in which I read only the benign condescension of majesty, though it was pre-eminently the enticing smile of the courtesan, which she graciously bestowed upon the men who bowed to her. That smile was, in reality, saying to one, Oh, yes, I do remember, quite well, it was wonderful. To another, how I should have loved to, we were unfortunate. To a third, yes, if you like, I must just keep in line for a minute, then as soon as I can, I will break away. When strangers passed, she still allowed to linger about her lips a lazy smile as though she expected or remembered some friend which made them say what a lovely woman and for certain men only she had a sour strained shy cold smile which meant yes you old goat i know that you've got a tongue like a viper that you can't keep quiet for a moment but do you suppose that i care what you say coquelin passed talking in a group of listening friends, and with a sweeping wave of his hand, bade a theatrical good day to the people in the carriages. But I thought only of Madame Swann, and pretended to have not yet seen her, for I knew that, when she reached the pigeon-shooting ground, she would tell her coachman to break away, and to stop the carriage, so that she might come back on foot. And on days when I felt that I had the courage to pass close by her, I would drag Françoise off in that direction, until the moment came when I saw Madame Swann, letting trail behind her the long train of her lilac skirt, dressed as the populace imagine queens to be dressed, in rich attire such as no other woman might wear, lowering her eyes now and then to study the handle of her parasol, paying scant attention to the passers-by, as though the important thing for her her one object in being there was to take exercise without thinking that she was seen, and that every head was turned towards her. Sometimes, however, when she had looked back to call her dog to her, she would cast, almost imperceptibly, a sweeping glance round about. Those even who did not know her were warned by something exceptional, something beyond the normal in her or perhaps by a telepathic suggestion, 
such as would move an ignorant audience to a frenzy of applause when Berma was sublime, that she must be someone well known. They would ask one another, Who is she? Or sometimes would interrogate a passing stranger, or would make a mental note of how she was dressed so as to fix her identity later in the mind of a friend better informed than themselves, who would at once enlighten them. Another pair, half stopping in their walk, would exchange, You know who that is? Madame Swan. That conveys nothing to you. Odette de Crecy, then? Odette de Crecy? Why, I thought as much. Those great sad eyes. But I say, you know, she can't be as young as she was once, eh? I remember I had her on the day that McMorn went. I shouldn't remind her of it, if I were you. She is now Madame Swan the wife of a gentleman in the jockey club, a friend of the Prince of Wales. Apart from that, though, she is wonderful still. Oh, but you ought to have known her then. Gad, she was lovely. She lived in a very odd little house with a lot of Chinese stuff. I remember we were bothered all the time by the newsboys, shouting outside. In the end she made me get up and go. Without listening to these memories... I could feel all about her the indistinct murmur of fame. My heart leaped with impatience when I thought that a few seconds must still elapse before all these people, among whom I was dismayed not to find a certain mulatto banker, who, or so I felt, had a contempt for me, were to see the unknown youth, to whom they had not, so far, been paying the slightest attention, salute, without knowing her, it was true, but I thought that I had sufficient authority, since my parents knew her husband, and I was her daughter's playmate. This woman, whose reputation for beauty, for misconduct, and for elegance was universal. But I was now close to Madame Swann. I pulled off my hat with so lavish, so prolonged a gesture, that she could not repress a smile. People laughed. As for her, she had never seen me with Gilberte. She did not know my name, but I was for her, like one of the keepers in the bois, like the boatman or the ducks on the lake to which she threw scraps of bread, one of the minor personages, familiar, nameless, as devoid of individual character as a stagehand in a theatre of her daily walks abroad. On certain days, when I had missed her in the Allée des Acacias. I would be so fortunate as to meet her in the Allée de la Reine Marguerite, where women went to wish to be alone, or to appear to be wishing to be alone. She would not be alone for long, being soon overtaken by some man or other, often in a grey tile-hat, whom I did not know, and who would talk to her for some time, while their two carriages crawled behind. The sense of the complexity of the Bois de Boulogne, which made it an artificial place, and, in the zoological or mythological sense of the word, a garden, I captured again this year, as I crossed it on my way to Trianon, on one of those mornings early in November, when in Paris, if we stay indoors, being so near, and yet prevented from witnessing the transformation scene of autumn, which is drawing so rapidly to a close without our assistance, we feel a regret for the fallen leaves that becomes a fever, 
and may even keep us awake at night. Into my closed room they had been drifting already for a month, summoned there by my desire to see them, slipping between my thoughts and the object, whatever it might be, upon which I was trying to concentrate them, whirling in front of me like those brown spots that sometimes, whatever we may be looking at, will seem to be dancing or swimming before our eyes. And on that morning, not hearing the splash of the rain as on the previous days, seeing the smile of fine weather at the corners of my drawn curtains, as from the corners of closed lips may escape the secret of their happiness, I had felt that I could actually see those yellow leaves, with the light shining through them, in their supreme beauty, and being no more able to restrain myself from going to look at the trees than, in my childhood's days, when the wind howled in the chimney, I had been able to resist the longing to visit the sea. I had risen and left the house to go to Trianon, passing through the Bois de Boulogne. It was the hour and the season in which the Bois seems, perhaps, most multiform, not only because it is then most divided, but because it is divided in a different way. Even in the unwooded parts, where the horizon is large, here and there, against the background of a dark and distant mass of trees, now leafless or still keeping their summer foliage unchanged, a double row of orange-red chestnuts seemed, as in a picture just begun, to be the only thing painted so far by an artist who had not yet laid any colour on the rest, and to be offering their cloister, in full daylight, for the casual exercise of the human figures that would be added to the picture later on. Further off, at a place where the trees were still all green, one alone, small, stunted, lopped, but stubborn in its resistance, was tossing in the breeze an ugly mane of red. Elsewhere, again, might be seen the first awakening of this maytime of the leaves, and those of an ampelopsis, a smiling miracle, like a red hawthorn flowering in winter, had that very morning all come out, so to speak, in blossom, and the bois had the temporary, unfinished, artificial look of a nursery garden, or a park, in which, either for some botanic purpose, or in preparation for a festival, there have been embedded among the trees of commoner growth, which have not yet been uprooted and transplanted elsewhere, a few rare specimens, with fantastic foliage, which seem to be clearing all round themselves an empty space, making room, giving air, diffusing light. Thus it was the time of year at which the Bois de Boulogne displays more separate characteristics, assembles more distinct elements in a composite whole than at any other. It was also the time of day. In places where the trees still kept their leaves, they seemed to have undergone an alteration of their substance from the point at which they were touched by the sun's light, still at this hour in the morning almost horizontal, as it would be again a few hours later at the moment when, just as dusk began, it would flame up like a lamp 
project afar over the leaves a warm and artificial glow, and set ablaze the few topmost boughs of a tree that would itself remain unchanged, a sombre, incombustible candelabrum beneath its flaming crest. At one spot the light grew solid as a brick wall, and like a piece of yellow Persian masonry, patterned in blue, daubed coarsely upon the sky the leaves of the chestnuts. At another it cut them off from the sky towards which they stretched out their curling golden fingers. Halfway up the trunk of a tree draped with wild vine, the light had grafted and brought to blossom, too dazzling to be clearly distinguished, an enormous posy, of red flowers apparently, perhaps of a new variety of carnation. The different parts of the bois, so easily confounded in summer in the density and monotony of their universal green, were now clearly divided. A patch of brightness indicated the approach to almost every one of them, or else a splendid mass of foliage stood out before it like an oriflame. I could make out, as on a coloured map, Armenonville, the Prey Catalan, Madrid, the racecourse, and the shore of the lake. Here and there would appear some meaningless erection, a sham grotto, a mill, for which the trees made room by drawing away from it, or which was borne upon the soft green platform of a grassy lawn. I could feel that the bois was not really a wood, that it existed for a purpose alien to the life of its trees. My sense of exultation was due not only to admiration of the autumn tints, but to a bodily desire, ample source of a joy which the heart feels at first without being conscious of its course, without understanding that it results from no external impulse. Thus I gazed at the trees with an unsatisfied longing which went beyond them, and, without my knowledge, directed itself towards that masterpiece of beautiful strolling women which the trees enframed for a few hours every day. I walked towards the Allée des Acacias. I passed through forest groves in which the morning light, breaking them into new sections, lopped and trimmed the trees, united different trunks in marriage, made nosegays of their branches. It would skilfully draw towards it a pair of trees. Making deft use of the sharp chisel of light and shade, it would cut away from each of them half of its trunk and branches, and, weaving together the two halves that remained, would make of them either a single pillar of shade, defined by the surrounding light, or a single luminous phantom whose artificial, quivering contour was encompassed in a network of inky shadows. When a ray of sunshine gilded the highest branches, they seemed, soaked and still dripping with a sparkling moisture, to have emerged alone from the liquid, emerald-green atmosphere in which the whole grove was plunged as though beneath the sea. For the trees continued to live by their own vitality, and when they had no longer any leaves, that vitality gleamed more brightly still from the nap of green velvet that carpeted their trunks, or in the white enamel of the globes of mistletoe that were scattered all the way up to the topmost branches of the poplars, rounded as are the sun and moon in Michelangelo's creation. But, forced for so many years now, by a sort of grafting process, to share the life of feminine humanity, 
they call to my mind the figure of the dryad, the fair worldling, swiftly walking, brightly coloured, whom they sheltered with their branches as she passed beneath them, and obliged to acknowledge, as they themselves acknowledged, the power of the season. They recalled to me the happy days when I was young and had faith, when I would hasten eagerly to the spots where masterpieces of female elegance would be incarnate for a few moments beneath the unconscious accommodating boughs. But the beauty for which the firs and acacias of the Bois de Boulogne made me long, more disquieting in that respect than the chestnuts and lilacs of Trianon which I was going to see, was not fixed somewhere outside myself, in the relics of an historical period, in works of art, in a little temple of love, at whose door was piled an oblation of autumn leaves ribbed with gold. I reached the shore of the lake. I walked on as far as the pigeon-shooting ground. The idea of perfection which I had within me, I had bestowed, in that other time, upon the height of a victoria, upon the raking thinness of those horses frenzied and light as wasps upon the wing with bloodshot eyes like the cruel steeds of diomed which now smitten by a desire to see again what i had once loved as ardent as the desire that had driven me many years before along the same paths i wished to see renewed before my eyes at the moment when madame swann's enormous coachman supervised by a groom no bigger than his fist, and as infantile as St. George in the picture, endeavoured to curb the ardour of the flying, steel-tipped pinions with which they thundered along the ground. Alas! It was nothing now but motor-cars, driven each by a moustached mechanic, with a tall footman towering by his side. I wished to hold before my bodily eyes, that I might know whether they were indeed as charming as they appeared to the eyes of memory, little hats, so low-crowned as to seem no more than garlands about the brows of women. All the hats now were immense, covered with fruits and flowers and all manner of birds. In place of the lovely gowns in which Madame Swann walked like a queen, appeared Greco-Saxon tunics, with Tanagra folds, or sometimes, in the directoire style, liberty chiffons, sprinkled with flowers like sheets of wallpaper. On the heads of the gentlemen, who might have been eligible to stroll with Madame Swann, in the Allée de la Reine Marguerite, I found not the grey tile-hats of old, nor any other kind. They walked the bois bareheaded, and seeing all these new elements of the spectacle, I had no longer the faith which, applied to them, would have given them consistency, unity, life. They passed in a scattered sequence before me, at random, without reality, containing in themselves no beauty that my eyes might have endeavoured, as in the old days, to extract from them, and to compose in a picture. They were just women, in whose elegance I had no belief, and whose clothes seemed to me unimportant. But when a belief vanishes, there survives it, more and more ardently, so as to cloak the absence of the power 
now lost to us, of imparting reality to new phenomena, an idolatrous attachment to the old things which our belief in them did once animate, as if it was in that belief, and not in ourselves, that the divine spark resided, and as if our present incredulity had a contingent cause. The death of the gods. Oh, horrible! I exclaimed to myself. Does anyone really imagine that these motor-cars are as smart as the old carriage and pair? I dare say. I am too old now. But I was not intended for a world in which women shackle themselves in garments that are not even made of cloth. To what purpose shall I walk among these trees, if there is nothing left now of the assembly that used to meet, beneath the delicate tracery of reddening leaves, if vulgarity and fatuity have supplanted the exquisite thing that once their branches framed. Oh, horrible! My consolation is to think of the women whom I have known in the past, now that there is no standard left of elegance. But how can the people who watch these dreadful creatures hobble by, beneath hats on which have been heaped the spoils of aviary or garden bed, how can they imagine the charm that there was in the sight of Madame Swann, crowned with a close-fitting lilac bonnet, or with a tiny hat from which rose stiffly above her head a single iris? Could I ever have made them understand the emotion that I used to feel on winter mornings when I met Madame Swann on foot, in an otter-skin coat, with a woollen cap from which stuck out two blade-like partridge feathers, but enveloped also in the deliberate, artificial warmth of her own house, which was suggested by nothing more than the bunch of violets crushed into her bosom, whose flowering, vivid and blue, against the grey sky, the freezing air, the naked boughs, had the same charming effect of using the season and the weather merely as a setting, and of living actually in a human atmosphere, in the atmosphere of this woman, as had in the vases and bopos of her drawing-room, beside the blazing fire, in front of the silk-covered sofa, the flowers that looked out through closed windows at the falling snow. But it would not have sufficed me that the costumes alone should still have been the same as in those distant years. Because of the solidarity that binds together the different parts of a general impression, parts that our memory keeps in a balanced whole, of which we are not permitted to subtract or to decline any fraction, I should have liked to be able to pass the rest of the day with one of those women, over a cup of tea, in a little house with dark-painted walls, as Madame Swann's were still in the year after that in which the first part of this story ends, against which would glow the orange flame, the red combustion, the pink and white flickering of her chrysanthemums in the twilight of a November evening in moments similar to those in which, as we shall see, I had not managed to discover the pleasures for which I longed. But now, albeit they had led to nothing, 
those moments struck me as having been charming enough in themselves. I sought to find them again as I remembered them. Alas, there was nothing now but flats decorated in the Louis Seize style, all white paint, with hortensias in blue enamel. Moreover, people did not return to Paris now, until much later. Madame Swann would have written to me, from a country house, that she would not be in town before February, had I asked her to reconstruct for me the elements of that memory which I felt to belong to a distant era, to a date in time towards which it was forbidden me to ascend again the fatal slope, the elements of that longing which had become itself as inaccessible as the pleasure that it had once vainly pursued. And I should have required also that they be the same women, those whose costume interested me, because, at a time when I still had faith, my imagination had individualized them, and had provided each of them with a legend. Alas, in the Acacia Avenue, the Myrtle Alley, I did see some of them again, grown old, no more now than grim spectres of what once they had been, wandering to and fro, in desperate search of heaven knew what, through the Virgilian groves. They had long fled, and still I stood vainly questioning the deserted paths. The sun's face was hidden. Nature began again to reign over the bois, from which had vanished all trace of the idea that it was the Elysian garden of woman. Above the gimcrack windmill, the real sky was grey. The wind wrinkled the surface of the Grand Lac, in little wavelets, like a real lake. Large birds passed swiftly over the bois, as over a real wood, and with shrill cries perched, one after another, on the great oaks which, beneath their druidical crown, and with Dodonaic majesty, seemed to proclaim the unpeopled vacancy of this estranged forest, and helped me to understand how paradoxical it is to seek in reality, for the pictures that are stored in one's memory, which must inevitably lose the charm that comes to them from memory itself, and from their not being apprehended by the senses. The reality that I had known no longer existed. It sufficed that Madame Swann did not appear, in the same attire and at the same moment, for the whole avenue to be altered. The places that we have known belong now only to the little world of space on which we map them for our own convenience. None of them was ever more than a thin slice, held between the contiguous impressions that composed our life at that time. Remembrance of a particular form is but regret for a particular moment, and houses, roads, avenues are as fugitive, alas, as the years. End of section 30 End of Swan's Way by Marcel Proust